Thanks for listening to The Murder of My Family. But before you go any further, stop. I want to tell you about the amazing new immersive podcast app, Bodacast, that will allow you to experience this podcast and others in a way that you haven't been able to until now. Bodacast will provide you a deeper version of the show and allow you to view photos of the people and places we're talking about in this episode. You'll also get links for articles about the case. When you experience a podcast on Bodacast, you not only will be listening to your favorite podcast, but you'll be getting stories that come alive with supplemental digital content that allows you to have everything being discussed in the episode at your fingertips. If you're like me, after you listen to a podcast, you search for more details or photos of the people and events discussed in the episode. With Vodacast, it's all right there for you. So try Vodacast out today. Click the link in my show notes to learn more about Vodacast or download the app today in the App Store and change the way you experience podcasts forever. That's Vodacast. V-O-D-A-C-A-S-T. You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, DNA ID, Three Men and a Mystery, Zodiac Speaking, and All Things Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the mysterious case of a beloved 30-year-old Texas man with no known enemies, who was found shot execution style next to his burning car. His murder had loved ones and police asking if he was killed because he was a gay man and the victim of a hate crime, or did he see something he shouldn't have and was killed to silence him. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, The Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderofmyfam or by searching for the Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder of My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. 
In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to give a shout-out to Gina Gigi from across the pond in the UK. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Juan Leon Lorellis, or Leon as he was known to family and friends, was born on January 3, 1966, and grew up in Brady, Texas. Leon was the youngest child in the family with eight older siblings. After all of his brothers and sisters moved out of the family home, Leon ended up taking care of his parents as they aged. Both of his parents were diabetic, and each had gone through a major surgery. When Leon got his driver's permit at the age of 14, he would drive his parents to doctor's appointments and pick up their prescriptions for them, sometimes missing or being late to school to be able to do this for them. Leon also tended to housework, as well as doing the cooking, something he enjoyed and was apparently very good at, his family recalls. Remarkably, Leon's family doesn't ever remember a time when he complained about his role as caretaker, even at 14 years old. At an age when most of Leon's peers were out having fun, he was focused on helping those he loved. Leon attended high school at Brady High School, where he took part in band all four years, graduating from there in 1985. Arlene Harbison, Leon's niece, was close in age with him, and they were raised more like cousins or siblings rather than uncle and niece, and they formed the tight bond. Besides being family, they were really great friends. Arlene would help Leon clean his parents' house every Saturday. After high school, Arlene got married, had a baby, and then got divorced. Leon moved to San Angelo just to help Arlene watch her son while she worked. He would also do the same for her next two sons, even moving to Brownwood, Texas, when Arlene moved there, further proving just how selfless and dedicated to his family Leon was. Leon became a checker at Kroger's Food Market and worked the overnight shift. He excelled at his job and enjoyed working there. The company recognized the best qualities in Leon, and he was promoted to manager. While Leon focused on family and friends so much and worked a full-time job, he sometimes suffered in his personal life. Compounding things for Leon was that he was a gay man, something he was open about to those closest to him. But in a mostly conservative state like Texas, he chose not to widely share that outside of his inner circle. On May 10, 1996, just half past midnight, authorities in Brownwood, Texas received a 911 call about a burning car near FM 2126. FM 2126 is a farm road that runs through Brownwood. It's paved and looks like a highway, but it winds through nothing much more than farmland and connects to other larger roads that actually lead somewhere. After a fire crew arrived and managed to put out the fire, they found the body of a male, deceased, just feet away from the car. But this person didn't die from a car fire. In fact, he wasn't even burned. He had been shot in the back of the head in what appeared to be an execution. His body was very close to a fence that surrounded a gun range. The burned car was determined to be a 1988 Ford Thunderbird that belonged to Juan Leon Lorellis and authorities quickly determined that the gunshot victim was Leon. At the time of his death, 
Liam was 30 years old and living with his older brother, George, in Bangs, Texas, just 10 miles west of Brownwood. Leon left the home he shared with George at 11.30 p.m. on May 9th on his way to his job at Kroger's grocery store, where he was due to work the graveyard shift starting at midnight. But Leon never showed up that night, something that immediately didn't sit right with his co-workers, because Leon was reliable, punctual, and always communicated well with his supervisor and fellow employees. The drive from Leon's home in Bangs to the Kroger should have only taken about 15 minutes, and it was a drive that Leon had made many times. There was plenty of time for Leon to make it to work on time, or even get him there early, ahead of his shift. This leads many to wonder what happened to Leon during that 10-mile drive. But some of Leon's co-workers at Kroger claim that Leon did make it to the grocery store that night, at least to the Kroger's parking lot. These co-workers remember seeing his 1988 Thunderbird, a distinct car, parked in the parking lot before his 12 a.m. shift was supposed to start. Sometime between Leon's colleagues seeing his car and noticing that Leon didn't show up inside the building, the Thunderbird disappeared from the lot. No one saw who drove it away, and no one's quite sure when. But by 12.30 a.m., someone did report seeing that car on fire on FM 2126. The timeline is very tight here. News of Leon's cold-blooded murder devastated his family, friends, and co-workers. None of them could think of any reason why someone would kill such a warm, caring, and friendly person in such a brutal fashion. Opinions about the motive behind Leon's murder seem divided. Many believe that Leon's murder was a hate crime, and that he was targeted because he was a homosexual man living in West Texas, where that kind of lifestyle may have been unacceptable in 1996 to many people. Others believe that Leon saw something that someone didn't want him to see. Leon's family and many in his community seem mostly set on the idea that his murder was a hate crime because he didn't feel safe being open about it in Brown County or in Brady. As I mentioned earlier, some of his friends and family knew, but mostly he didn't talk about it. Perhaps someone that Leon was romantically involved with was afraid that their relationship with Leon would come to light. There were rumors of an area teacher that was not openly gay having some sort of relationship with Leon. For whatever reason, the authorities seemed to believe more in the theory that Leon witnessed something he shouldn't have, and he was killed to silence him. It's not entirely clear what they base this belief on, but one thing seems like a distinct possibility, that whoever killed Leon may have been in his car and wanted to destroy evidence. This would explain the need to burn it on top of killing Leon outside of the car. But it's also not entirely clear that Leon was shot where he was found. He may have been dumped there along with his car. Since we're discussing different areas here in this episode, including the Kroger's where Leon worked on Main Street in Brownwood, Texas, the home he lived in in Bangs, Texas, and where his body and car were recovered on FM 2126, it may be hard to visualize all of these locations in relation to each other. If you're experiencing this episode on the Vodacast app, it may help to paint a clearer picture for you, due to the visual side of Vodacast. The only real clue police seemed to have following Leon's murder was a distinct truck seen by an eyewitness following Leon's car up the farm road. It was a pickup truck of an unknown model that was, quote, possibly a one-ton possibly red and off-white or beige with no bed on the truck. Despite the unique description of that truck, 
It, along with its driver, was not identified. Eventually, Leon's case went cold. Leon's niece, Stephanie, who was just a child when her uncle was murdered, is now a librarian. She wanted to research her uncle's case. Her research led her to the knowledge that just two days before his death, Leon told his older sister that people were upset with him and that they wanted to hurt him. But Leon claimed to not have any idea why they wanted to hurt him. This may back up the police theory that someone suspected that Leon might have knowledge of crime and wanted to silence him, and perhaps Leon didn't even witness anything, or at least didn't realize that he did. Stephanie believes that whoever killed him had to be someone he knew, or he never would have left the Kroger parking lot with them willingly. Then again, Leon could have been taken at gunpoint, perhaps by one or more people. Stephanie also believes that there has to be more than one person involved, one to drive or ride with Leon from the Kroger's in his Thunderbird, and one person that may have been driving the mystery truck seen following Leon's car. In 2005, Leon's murder was transferred to the Texas Rangers Cold Case Unit. In 2008, authorities believed they had persons of interest in Leon's murder, but no arrests were ever made, and after 25 years, Leon's case remains unsolved. Leon's loved ones miss him, and they want to know who took him away from them, and why. If you have any information about Leon's case, please call the Brown County Sheriff's Office at 325-646-5510, or you can go to the website heartoftexascrimestoppers.org and submit an anonymous tip. Leon's beloved niece and close friend, Arlene, joined me to discuss this senseless and tragic case. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hey everyone, summer's in full swing and a lot of people want to get out and enjoy the sun. But for some of us, that's easier said than done. Because all too often, things that have been weighing on us keep us from doing everything that we want to do and living our best lives. But the good news is, there's help, and that help is BetterHelp. If there's something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, then BetterHelp Online Counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, and you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp can assist you with so many things from sleep issues, stress, and family conflicts to help with relationships, anger issues, LGBT matters, and so much more. Anything you share is confidential, and while BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a healthier life today. As a listener of The Murder of My Family, you'll get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com slash family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to betterhelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash family, and you'll save 10% on your first month of BetterHelp. This episode is sponsored by Every Plate, America's Best Value Meal Kit. Experience full plates and fuller wallets with America's Best Value Meal Kit. 
Every plate makes home cooking easy and affordable as a much cheaper alternative to takeout, but just as delicious. Think of it this way. One meal from every plate is the same price as one cup of coffee. And best of all, it's delivered to your door hassle-free. Recipes come together in about 30 minutes. Definitely faster than a trip to the grocery store and starting a meal from scratch. Let's face it, there's a lot of meal kit services out there to choose from. But with every plate, you'll get great meals delivered to your door fresh and at a price that's more affordable than the competition. This week, I had the pork sausage linguine and it was out of this world. Now listeners of the Murder of My Family can try every plate for just $1.99 per meal, plus an additional 20% off your next two boxes by going to everyplate.com and entering code FAMILY199. Once again, go to everyplate.com and enter promo code FAMILY199 to try every plate for just $1.99 per meal, plus an additional 20% off your next two boxes. Hi, Arlene, and welcome to the show. I want to thank you for coming on to discuss your uncle's case with us. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. I really want to get the word out, and I appreciate all your help. My pleasure, and I know that you've been an uh, active advocate for your uncle's case, so I really look forward to hearing your insights about what's happened. But before we get into the details around the mystery of, of how your uncle died, can we talk a little bit about his life and, and maybe let us know a little bit about him and maybe some of your memories of him? Yes. Um, he and I were very close. Um, we were just a little over two years apart in age. So we basically grew up together. He was the youngest in his family and I was the oldest. My mom was 17 when he was born. So like I said, we grew up together um, went to school together. When we were older, he took me to school. We were in the band together. We'd go out dancing on Saturday nights. Um, as uh, as we grew up, he lived with me. Um, when I had my first son, he lived with me two years. And then I had two more children and he lived with me another two years. And he's the one that taught my kids, you know, how to write their name, their numbers, their colors. And he would work the graveyard shift so that he could watch my kids during the day while I worked until he moved in with his older brother in Bangs. So it sounds like he was heavily involved in your life and, and your children's lives as a mentor, uh, not just an uncle. Yes, very much so. He was basically my best friend. He was always there for me. He was there to help me through my life. And through my children's lives, without ever asking, he was just that kind of person. Family was big, a big deal to him, and he would just help anyone. He basically took care of his parents as he was growing because they were really sick. And so he would have to take them to doctor's appointments, um, get their medications, make sure they took their medications, cooked and clean and he did all of that from a very young age until they passed away. It sounds like he was very giving with his time and uh, for his family. Yes, very much so. And he loved all of his nieces and nephews and, you know, would spend time with each one of them and bought them gifts for their birthdays. And he did the same with my children. And we all have very fond memories of him. He was just a very caring, loving, and selfless person. And it sounds like from everything you're describing, he's he's a big family man. He's got a, a good job. He was, what, a, a manager at a Kroger? He was a manager. 
so he's got a, a good job spending time with the family doesn't sound like he's doing anything that would put him in harm's way and then all of that changed in in may 1996 if we can we'll talk a little bit about that your uncle's car was found burning on a secluded road near brownwood on may 10th and he was found next to his car shot execution style how did you and your family get that news and, and how do you process that an uncle that's so kind and loving and caring has been murdered in in cold blood like that. Yeah, it was devastating. It was absolutely the worst day of my life to this day. Um, The police actually contacted my uncle, the one that he lived with. So then he contacted the rest of the family and I got the phone call in the middle of the night. And I remember, you know, my cousin telling me, someone killed Leon and I was like what like you know you're thinking this is not real this is a joke a really bad joke or something so she kept repeating it and then I just remember just yelling no 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 I dropped the phone and I'm crying and I really don't even remember what happened after that until like later in the day when we were at the sheriff's department I don't even know how I got there I was just so devastated like I couldn't believe this actually happened he was such a kind person everyone loved him I can't imagine why anyone would want to hurt him you mentioned going to the police station not really even remembering I guess because you're in shock and, and you're sad do you remember what they said did they give you any kind of clue did they have any clues even to work with at that point no, actually, they never, ever spoke to me. They would only speak to my Uncle George. Um, I don't know why that is, but they didn't speak to my mother or any of the women. It was just my Uncle George they spoke to. So he would relate the messages to us. And they told him that because, you know, the car was set on fire and they had to put the fire out, that there would be no evidence on the car. So they didn't have anything to work with. All they knew is the person that contacted 911 when they saw the car burning was there was a wide or off-wide truck with a flatbed that was driving very slowly on the shoulder of the road that they saw behind Leon's car. And to this day, they've never found that vehicle, which I find very strange because Brownwood was a very small town and, you know, everyone knows everyone and the truck not having a bed at the back kind of seems like you should be able to spot that easily, but they never found that. And it's very frustrating when, when you have very distinct vehicles that should stand out and someone should remember in, in a you know community, I don't know how large the community is, but something like that should stick with someone should register. And then the not have anyone come forward to say they know who that truck belongs to must be frustrating. Absolutely. I mean, like I said, it was a small town and everyone knew everyone, basically. So there had to be somebody that knew of someone that owned a vehicle like that, but no one's ever come forward and the vehicle's never been found. So early on, you're dealing with with the emotion, you're getting this news, you're having to process it. I'm sure your family is just, uh, those first few days must have been awful. Did, Did there come a point where you started thinking to yourself, 
something might have been amiss in the days leading up to, to Leon being murdered? Did you remember something uh, odd or something that stood out that maybe looking back uh, he may have been worried about? Yeah. Um, actually, recently I've spoken to a cousin that gave me a lot of information on the days leading up to his murder, which I had never heard before. He said that he told the police investigators and they never contacted him again, never looked into what he, the information he gave them, and they have never returned his phone calls. He told me that he saw Leon um, two days before at the park speaking to some guy in a red car and he was leaving the park so my cousin followed him but he got caught at the stop sign and he noticed that the police investigator stopped the guy in the red car but just spoke to him for a few minutes and then he went on so he went back to the park and spoke to leon and asked who that guy was leon said it was a friend from the hospital he was a doctor and he told the investigators that, and they never followed up. They refused to return his phone calls. And I guess he just kept it to himself till recently when he told me. So I don't know whatever came of that. I don't even know who these investigators were because he couldn't remember their names. And he was actually living in the halfway house at that time. And so he didn't even know how they figured out where he was or who he was. So he got the feeling that they were just basically asking him questions to see how much he knew about this. And because of the fact that they never returned his phone call and never spoke to him again, he just was, you know, a little weirded out by it. It's kind of suspicious to me because when this happened, it's out of the city limits. So it was the sheriff's department and the Texas Rangers that were investigating Leon's case. It wasn't the local police department. So I don't know who these investigators were. So another frustrating thing, you know, you have a vehicle already that seems to stand out that no one knows about. And then you have this interaction uh, that you can't find the details for as well. Yeah. Uh, also, I learned that one of the local people in Brownwood spoke to Leon also two days before this happened at the coffee shop he worked at. And he said that Leon told him that he was a little upset because the person that he was seeing uh, was a man, a teacher from the Brady, Texas. That's where we grew up. And that Leon didn't want to keep it a secret anymore, but the teacher refused to come out because living in a super small conservative town, he was afraid he'd, you know, be let go. And so he didn't want to come out. So Leon was upset about that. And then whenever Leon was murdered, he did call the sheriff's department and gave them this information. And he also never heard back from them either. And I looked into his, um, I have his yearbooks. I looked in his yearbooks and I found the teacher and there was some, some words written on there by, I don't know who, um, that were not nice words, but I was trying to reach out to this teacher and he just passed away in February. So I can't speak to him now. 
And do you know if police uh, questioned him or talked to him at all? I believe so, but I don't have that information to back that up. And one other thing I had read about doing some research is that your uncle may have been worried about some phone calls that he got as well during the days leading up uh, to his murder. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah. um, Several days before this happened, he went to his sister, Lily, and told told her that there were some people that were mad at him. Um, He said there were the... I don't know if you want to put that in there, but so that they were mad at him and wanted to hurt him, but he didn't know why. And that was all that he said. When we touched on, you know, your uncle is a a family guy. He's got a job. He's not, you know, hanging out with unsavory characters. Uh, So it, it seems frustrating that there would be this little tidbit of information but nothing to really connect with it to to maybe lead you to come up with some ideas or or maybe police as well to come up with ideas. Yeah, and also last week, uh, one of his co-workers reached out to me and said that in the weeks before that there were people harassing him, but she didn't know who. But Leon was scared at work because people were harassing him. Um, I don't know if this is because for the first time in his life, he got to live for himself and he, you know, realized that he was gay and started dating this man. I don't know if that's the reason, Um, but the sheriff's department speculated that maybe he saw something he shouldn't have from these people that he recently started hanging out with. So I don't really know why this happened. I just know that. He, everyone loved him at work, his customers, his coworkers. I mean, he was everything to our family. I don't know a single moment that he ever raised his voice at anyone or was mad at anyone. So I really find it hard to believe that somebody would want to do this to him. I don't understand it. And it's my heart's been broken since then because he was my best friend and we did so much together. He helped me through a lot of things. He was always there for me. And there's always going to be that emptiness because he's not around, you know, to see my kids grow up, see my grandkids. It's just really heartbreaking. And I need, I feel like I'm fighting this fight alone Um, so I'm so grateful to you guys that are helping me get the word out because he's been forgotten and he deserves justice because he was such an amazing person. He definitely sounds like it. And you had touched on the fact that he had realized that he was gay and he was, uh, finally able to, you know, come out and live his life out in the open. But he was a little bit uh, wary of that at first because of that time and that area that he thought it might not be the best idea. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we grew up Catholic, so you don't even, you know, that's a no, no. And we don't talk about it. And we were in a small town, very conservative. So yes, I can, I can imagine that it was really super hard for him. Um, But apparently he liked or loved this man enough to want to come out And that's what's so heartbreaking because he never got a chance to do that. He didn't get a chance to be in love or marry the person he loves or anything like that. It was taken away from him right 
when he was starting to feel comfortable with who he was and live in his life for himself. It's just heartbreaking. Yeah, and if he was killed because he was gay, then, you know, we're talking about a hate crime here uh, on top of, a, you know, a murder, which makes it even worse. Have police discovered any kind of evidence that you know that it was a hate crime? I know you mentioned that they think it's possible he saw something he shouldn't have, but is there anything one way or the other that, that says it could be or might not be a hate crime? Um, no, because I feel like, they refused to investigate it in that way, in that manner. They, that's why they gave us the reason that he may have seen something he wasn't supposed to, because I don't think they want to investigate a hate crime. They don't want it to be a hate crime. So they've never looked into it. So you think there's a lot more that they could be exploring that, that perhaps hasn't been dug into enough? Absolutely. I think they're, they did a very poor job in investigating Leon's case. Um, I don't know if that's because he was gay and they don't want to, you know, put any effort into it because they they destroyed the car because they said there wouldn't be any evidence. But you know what? There could have been. We don't know that. I feel like even this, where the seat position was in his car could have given us you know, an idea if Leon drove the car himself over there because he was a very tall, big man. So he always had his seat all the way re to the back and reclined in order for him to sit. And if the car wasn't in that position, then someone else drove the car because at the parking lot, when he got to work, someone did see his car there and another car beside him, and then it was gone. So I feel like he was forced to leave there because Leon was never late for work. He would not have gotten to work and then just left on his own without letting them know, look, something came up, you know, I have to leave or I'll be late or anything like that, that he wouldn't have done that. So he was forced to leave there. So the car could have given us some clues, but that was destroyed. So, like I said, I don't think they investigated it properly and they refused to admit that it could be a hate crime. So we have no answers, absolutely none at all. Yeah, and the fact that he was shot outside of the car, but the car was still set on fire seems to indicate that someone might have wanted to cover up evidence that they had been in the car and wanted to make sure there were no ties back to them. That's exactly what I think, too. They knew what to do. And like I said, they got rid of the car, so we will never know if there's any type of evidence or any clues in there. And it was confirmed that he did make it to work that night to the parking lot, but never made it inside? Yes, one of the co-workers saw his car in the parking lot. I mean, it only took like 10 minutes to get there. He left the house at 1130, so he had to have gotten to the parking lot between 1140, 1145. And then the 911 call came in at 1230. And it takes about 15 minutes to get out there to where he was killed. So this happened right around midnight. So assuming it wasn't a random act, just some bad guy that he happened to run in there, it seems like someone was waiting there and had this plan ready to go. 
Absolutely, because it had to take more than one person. Either somebody rode with him in the car or somebody drove his car while the other person drove that other car. There had to be at least two people involved. Hey, everyone. I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Gainful. Right now, I think a lot of us are trying to get healthy, and there's nothing more personal than your health. So when it comes to finding the right nutrition supplements to meet your fitness goals, you need a personalized approach. Thankfully, now there's Gainful, the personalized nutrition system that's formulated for your body and goals. Gainful gives you peace of mind that your protein, hydration, and pre-workout supplements contain the finest ingredients, specifically for you. You can get started by taking the 5-Minute Gainful Quiz. Gainful considers your dietary needs, goals, and unique physiology to personalize your formula. Gainful delivers your supplements with no shipping charge every month, and you can cancel any time or adapt your plan as needed. All Gainful products are formulated by their on-staff registered dietitians and are backed by pro-level exercise scientists on their science advisory board. And every Gainful customer gets complimentary one-on-one access to their registered dietitian, available anytime to answer your questions. And Gainful's rigorous quality control process ensures that your supplements only have clean ingredients that you can pronounce, along with zero artificial flavors, colors, or sweeteners. I tried the strawberry lemonade hydration powder and the watermelon pre-workout, and they're both great. My goal was to stay hydrated and energized during my workout and after, and Gainful did the trick. Best of all, you can tailor the flavor of your proteins to suit your taste buds with a variety of delicious flavors like rich chocolate, Madagascar vanilla, and strawberry cream, just to name a few. Start your personalized fitness journey today with Gainful. To get $20 off your personalized supplements, go to Gainful.com slash murder. That's Gainful.com slash murder, and you'll get $20 off. Gainful, personalized nutrition made for your taste. Yeah, and the, the area, if I'm not mistaken, is pretty out of the way. Um, not the easiest place to get out of. If if someone had rode with your uncle, they'd have a hard time getting out of there and getting, I, I guess, back to a, a, a civilization, maybe is the best way to put it. Uh, how far out of, right. out of town, out of, you know, the main part of the area is it? Um, it's like, it's like a 10 to 15 minute drive from the Kroger store out there. It's um, right next to the gun range and it's hard to find. You have, there's like a little access road underneath the overpass. So you have to know exactly where it is in order to get down there. Um, I think the only reason anybody knew anything was happening because his car was you know, set on fire there. And that's what they saw as the fire. There wasn't any houses nearby there. There are now, but there wasn't at the time. It's just a little road. It's a two lane road out there. So they had to know where they were going. Yeah. And and that might make it seem like it's someone local that knows the area as opposed to someone out of town. Yeah, that's exactly what I think also. And then we have the, the the possibility if someone is driving that person away from the scene, then you've got another person, a second person involved in this crime on some sort of level. Mm-hmm. Yes. You mentioned that the police that are investigating this case haven't done everything that you think they could, uh, and they're not being you know widely open with you about what's being done in in your opinion what are some of the things that you'd still like to see done that that haven't been done to, to help solve the case well i mean there's been a lot of speculation on who these two guys 
that may have done this, I I feel like they haven't been properly investigated as well. I'd like to see them. They say they opened they reopened the case, but nothing has ever come from that either. So I would like to see it properly investigated and have these people go in and, you know, be interrogated or whatever. I want to see them having an actual effort in trying to solve this because I feel like it's such a small town. Somebody knows something. Somebody knows who did this. Those people probably have talked to other people and told them what they did. There is somebody out there that knows, but they are afraid to come forward. And in my opinion, the reason they're afraid is because someone is threatening them. And my speculation is it's law enforcement. Um, we did hire an investigator after Leon was murdered, and he did inform us that there was a lot of corruption in that town with the law enforcement, and his life was threatened, so he had to quit the case, and he has also refused to speak on it. I don't know what happened there. So I feel like there's a lot of a lot of things we have not been told. Um, that's got to be frustrating to have, you know, the, the police are supposed to be investigating the case, not only not sharing with you, not being open with you, but uh, some possibility that they're, they're involved on some level. And then you've got the investigator you hire to help you that, that also shuts down and, and doesn't want anything to do with, with digging into that uh, line of questioning. Yes, it's so frustrating. Um, there's also been rumors that the person, one of the persons involved is a son of someone in law enforcement there in town. And that's the reason there's been a lot of cover up. But I don't know that for a fact. Those are just rumors that I've heard. And it kind of makes sense, you know. Don't know what's going on. Well, the case is 25 years. It's a quarter century old, which is that time. I don't know how, how it's felt for you, but it seems like. I remember back to the mid nineties and I can't believe it's been that long now, but for you to be without someone yeah. who was such a, a close friend and relative to you and in your life, uh, that that's has to have been a tough time. It has been really tough. And we just celebrated his 25th anniversary and it brings up a lot of memories. I mean, it's been 25 years and you'd think I could get past it now, but I, it just hurts like it was yesterday. Just, I can't believe he's not here. I can't believe someone would want to hurt him. And I can't believe that this case hasn't been solved when it absolutely could be solved if there was proper investigation. Well, and let's hope that something is out there. Someone is out there maybe that holds the key. You know, it, as bad as 25 years is with no answers, in a way, that time has passed, so maybe someone who's afraid of someone else now is in a different position where they can come forward and, and share information because they're not afraid of someone. Maybe someone they were afraid of has passed away or has gone to prison, and now they can talk. So maybe that, that passage of time can help in some way as far as someone coming forward with information. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm hoping for. You know, just it's been 25 years. 
please, if you know anything, anything at all, please reach out. Leon deserves justice, and I'm still here fighting for him. Yeah, I know you've been quite an advocate for his case. Uh, I know you've done podcasts. Uh, I've seen several interviews that you've done with, with the news. Do you have any um, Facebook pages or websites or anything like that set up that we can direct people to? Yeah, I have a, a page called Justice for Leon that I have set up for him. Um, I haven't gotten a lot of, you know, responses or likes on there, but I'm hoping um, as we get the word out that people, you know, will look at his page, remember something and, you know, speak up. Yeah. And you, you never know the right person maybe just needs to see it and it'll click something for them and say, you know what? I remember that case. I thought it was solved, but it, uh, it's not. And maybe I have some information that might be of help. So the right person might see it come forward and we'll definitely put it out on social media so that people in that area can share it and hopefully get it in front of the right eyes. Yes, absolutely. That's what I'm hoping for. And I thank you so much for doing this for us. My pleasure. And if anyone out there listening does have information regarding Leon's case, please contact the Brown County Sheriff's Office at 325-646-5510. You know, in talking to you, I didn't know your uncle, but it sounds like he was a wonderful person. To sum up, what would you like his legacy to be when people think of him and and think of who he was? What do you want them to remember? I want people to remember his beautiful smile, his kind eyes, and his selflessness that he was always there for everyone. Um, No matter what you needed, he'd be there for you. He would buy gifts for everyone. He'd help anyone. He'd make you laugh. He's just the sweetest person in the world. And I know that all of his coworkers and friends have very fond memories of him. We sure do miss him. And he was such an amazing person. And I want everyone to know just what a great person he was and that he's dearly missed. Well, I hope, despite the passage of time, it's been 25 years, I hope that somehow, some way, uh, you do get the answers and that whoever played a role in this is held accountable. Yes, I hope so. I hope someone has, you know, is not afraid anymore and will speak up. And, you know, hopefully we can, you know, help protect you if we need to. You can you can call and be anonymous. You know, just anything you remember would be so helpful since we really have no answers at all. Anything will be helpful. Yeah, please do the right thing, and no matter how unimportant your information seems, just bring it forward and, and let police determine if they can do anything with it. Uh, I want to thank you once again, Arlene, for coming on and discussing uh, your uncle's case with us. And again, I hope that you do get some answers and, and find some justice for what happened to him. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. As we wrap up, I'd like to play a preview for a true crime podcast. It's called Reverie. Be sure to give it a listen. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something 
to somebody. I'm Paige, the host of Reverie True Crime. I tell stories of helpless victims, vicious killers, predators watching their prey before they strike, survivors, petty crimes, people we think we know who do the unthinkable, and the dangers that lurk not only in the dead of night, but in plain sight and the light of day. Every once in a while, I'll also tell stories of the frightening paranormal, elusive cryptids, haunted locations, and conspiracies that may be silly or thought-provoking. You can listen to Reverie True Crime wherever you're listening to this podcast. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at Reverie Crime Pod. Facebook, Instagram, and even Tumblr at Reverie True Crime. Remember, stay safe, be aware of your surroundings at all times, and take care.